0: in chapter four and then pick up in verse 13. If you're physically able, I would invite you, if you would, to stand as we read the word of God together this morning. This is what the word says. Since we have the same spirit of faith according to what has been written, I believe and so I speak, and so I spoke, we also believe and so we also spoke, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is, for, uh, for it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen, for the things that are seen are uh, transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Gonna be talking a lot about vision this morning, perspective, sight, those sort of things. Your perspective, your, your vision, your sight, gives understanding to what is, what is real, what is true. Now, what you see, what you perceive, doesn't change what is real, doesn't change what is true, but it gives you the ability to see, to understand what is true. Imagine with me that you're a, a, a young teenager and you work, your job is that you are an assistant for a man who has become enemy number one Uh, to a very powerful political leader. The political leader has become so enraged with your boss that he has um, marched a large army and an equally large contingent of military equipment and has ordered his men to go and arrest your boss by any means necessary. Early one morning you get up to begin your day and as you go about your routine and preparing for the day, you, you happen to look outside and you see something that, that strikes terror into your, into your heart. The army and all of their impressive equipment of that political leader that is so angry at your boss has taken up positions around your entire city. The army is so numerous that they surround the city. You don't know how many there, 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 there are, but you know there are more than you can count. And you're terrified. You see no possible way that you or your boss could possibly escape. They've got the entire city surrounded. Their might, their, 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 their resources outnumber yours tremendously. And and the thought of the mistreatment, the torture that the enemy will inflict is is really more than you can bear to imagine. Your only hope really is that death will come quickly as they do what they're going to do to you after they capture you and your boss. In a panic, you run to your boss's room, you awaken him from his sleep, and you tell him the news. You you tell him that there is an army that has surrounded the city. You you, you implore him, brother, you got to get up, get up. We've got to do something now. But the shock to you is that when your boss looks out the window to see the the mass army that surrounded the city that struck such terror into your heart, when he looks out the window and he observes this army, he turns to you and says with really almost no excitement in his voice at all, oh, it's all right. (laughs) It's all right. There's really no need to be afraid. Those who are with us are way more than those who are with them. Now, at this point, you're pretty confused. You're perplexed. What in the world is he talking about? Now, surely you know that he has some friends and some supporters and those that will certainly be advocates for him in the town in the city, but, but none of these are soldiers, and even if you were to, to marshal the entirety of this whole city, there wouldn't be enough of the people in the city, even if they were soldiers, even if they had all the military equipment that the army surrounding the city had, even still, there wouldn't be enough to, to make a, a legitimate, a, a, a reasonable defense. What in the world is your boss talking about? But before you can challenge your boss's assessment, you, you, you see your boss Get down on his knees and he starts to pray. Well, this is an encouraging sign because if there's anything he needs to do, it's pray. And that's right, brother, pray. But your boss does something a little weird, he prays out loud a very short sentence and he doesn't pray for deliverance. He doesn't pray that God would send some some, some hail or lightning strikes or fire or anything like that to consume the enemy. No, he prays this. He says, oh Lord, please open the eyes, open his eyes that he may see. He's praying for you that you can see. What in the world is your boss talking about? But as you spoke these words, something happened to you. Almost like Scales fell off of your eyes, or a veil was removed, or somehow you were able to see what had been there the whole time, but you but but were not able to see when you first looked out and saw the great army. After your boss prayed for you, now when you look out, On the city's outskirts, you see the invading army. They're still there. Their their military array is still there. All of their equipment is still there. They're still in the same number that they've always been. But now you can see a more numerous army. In fact, As you look just beyond the army that is surrounded the city, you see up in the mountains uncountable, uncountable um, numbers of military men and equipment far numerous, more numerous than the army of the men surrounding the city. And the men who are up on the mountain surrounding the army that surrounds you, they and their equipment are men of fire. Pretty impressive. At the sight of this, Instantly, your fear is gone, not because the situation has changed, but because your perspective has changed. Your vision has changed. What you see has changed. This is what happened to the young man who was the servant to the prophet Elijah. When the king of Assyria sent his army to capture him, 2 Kings chapter 6 tells us that that army surrounded the city. The servant was afraid. Elijah prayed that God would give the servant vision. And when he saw what God's army was doing surrounding the army of Syria, he was no longer afraid. Perspective changes everything. An invading army is bad. But not when protected by a heavenly host. In our passage Paul continues to recognize the reality of suffering that he had personally experienced and recognition that all those who follow Jesus will also know. If you're a follower of Jesus, you will know suffering this side of heaven. In fact, you might even make the argument that if you're a follower of Jesus, you may in fact know more suffering this side of heaven than those who don't follow Jesus. And yet he speaks of the afflictions of this world, not as un, unbearable foes, unbeatable foes, or unbearable burdens, but, but temporary. In fact, the great line in this passage is, he says these momentary, light afflictions. Now, Paul is not making stuff up. And he's not ignoring the reality of his life. No, Paul is speaking honestly, correctly about his suffering. They are momentary. They are light. But he's able to say that about his afflictions because in the light of eternity, even the most unpleasant suffering this side of heaven has no weight at all. And so I want you to see... From this passage this morning, two very simple but fundamentally important truths. Number one, you need to understand what your motivating hope is. Why you chase after Jesus. If it's for an easy life, you won't chase after him alone. So Paul understood his motivating hope, the glory of God and for the purpose of the gospel is what propels him even as suffering increases. And then secondly, his sustaining vision. What he sees allows him to continue even, if, even while his present reality is rather um, dire and difficult. And so I want you this morning to have the same motivating hope, and I want you this morning to have the same sustaining vision. Let's begin with motivating hope. It, we, we find it in the passage in verses 13 through 15. So just turn back with me again. Let's reread the passage together. And Paul says, Since we have the same spirit of faith... According to what has been written, I believe and so I spoke. We also believe and so we also spoke, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. For it is all for your sake, so that as grace extends to more and more people, it may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. In verse 13 and 14, Paul is talking about his confidence, his confidence in the resurrection. I mentioned even in the earlier part of our service this morning of how central, how fundamental, how foundational the, the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is to our, our faith. In fact, I would say that the resurrection of Jesus from the grave is the most central, the most foundational truth of the Christian faith. In the first letter to the Corinthians, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul devoted an entire chapter to the importance, to the authenticity, to the foundational nature of the resurrection to the Christian church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 3, Paul says of the resurrection that it is of first importance. In other words, don't pass go. You gotta get this before you can understand anything else about the gospel. First Corinthians chapter 15, verses 13 says, But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. In other words, if there's no resurrection, all of what we're doing today is pointless and worthless. If there is no resurrection, Jesus does not live, you are not saved, and we have no hope. The motivating hope for Paul in in his ministry and his work is the resurrection of Jesus. Because Jesus is raised from the grave, because he is raised from the grave, sin has been defeated, death has been defeated, there is hope in the gospel, and that's what motivates him to preach, is what motivates him to do all that he does. The resurrection of Jesus is why he's given his life to the gospel and why he's willing to endure suffering. In verse 13, Paul identifies with the church and, 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 and with all who have been saved. He says, we're of the same spirit of faith, Uh, We're the same testimony of truth, the the word of God. We're the same belief in the salvation of Jesus. We, We have preached and believed the same gospel that we preach and that you have believed. But all these things rest on the declaration of verse 14 when he says, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will also raise with Jesus and bring us with you into his presence. So the gospel that he's preached, the faith that they have had, the the testimony of the the Spirit, all those things rest on the reality of the resurrection. Faith in the resurrection of Jesus gives faith that you will be raised to life by God. Friends, your hope of eternity with Jesus rests on on the resurrection. If God raised Jesus from the dead, we believe he will also raise us from the dead. Hope in the resurrection of Jesus gives hope that you will be raised to life in God. It's why we are able to preach the gospel, particularly in moments of death. One of the things that I have often said at funerals is, if the gospel doesn't mean anything when you're preaching a funeral, it doesn't mean anything at all any other time you might preach. Brothers, when we gather for funerals, we gather usually in the presence of a corpse. We take that corpse, and we go to a place of burial, and we place it in the ground, and we preach in those moments that even though death has come, there is life still to be had. Because Jesus rose from the grave, we have hope that all those who believed on Jesus will also rise from the grave. It's why we believe. It's why we hope. It's what motivates us today to preach the gospel. The confidence in the resurrection is what binds all believers together. Paul had interpersonal conflict with some in the church. We've already mentioned in previous chapters, previous verses, part of what he's doing here is defending himself against some in the church that had accused him of not not acting well toward the church or not being honest toward the church. Dear friends, I don't know of a church that's ever existed that didn't have some conflict in it. What unifies the church, both locally and globally and eternally, it's not that we always see eye to eye. It's not that we always agree that what color carpet ought to be in the church or what instruments we play or how we sing or what we sing or anything like that. What what unifies the church is our faith in God's promise to raise those who believed in Jesus to life. That's central. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you have no fellowship with the church. Faith that through the the resurrection, God will raise us to dwell with him forever and ever in heaven. Dear friends, we get to heaven through the resurrection. Until the Lord returns, we will struggle with disagreements over non-essential issues. Just get used to that. That's part of living in a Genesis 3 world. However, the church must be unified in faith and confident in the resurrection of Jesus. That's why Paul says, listen, even with all the conflict you and I have had, the same faith, the same hope, the same confidence binds us together. The hope, the confidence in the resurrection Confidence that Jesus rose again from the dead and confidence that that God will also raise those who have believed in faith as well. But there's another thing he says in verse 15 that's pretty pretty precious to me. Look at what he says in verse 15. So he talks about the confidence of, uh, of the resurrection and then he says in verse 15, for it is all for your sake so that as Grace extends to more and more people. It may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. The motivating hope for Paul was certainly foundationally the resurrection, but it was also thanksgiving for God's glory. Now, I want you to understand how more people coming to know Jesus, thanksgiving, and God's glory all go together here because it's pretty precious. Paul is certainly motivated by God receiving more and more glory. Paul recognized that the the cost of preaching the gospel was great, but he rejoiced for the sake of the lost that they might hear the gospel and be saved. You see, what motivated Paul was the the salvation of the lost, but because this increased the glory that God would receive. Now listen to me carefully If you know, if you've gotten a glimpse of the glory of God, then friends, understand this. If you have gotten a glimpse of the glory of God, you understand that God rightly deserves all the glory, all the honor, all the praise. Now, here's the reality. Until you come to know Jesus and salvation, you can't glorify God. You can't praise God because you don't know God. Only those who have been transformed by the gospel, only those who have been washed clean by the blood, only those who have been transformed into children of God can speak words of of thanksgiving, words of praise, and live lives that glorify the, uh, the, the, the Father God. So here's what Paul understands. The more people who come to know Jesus, the more Jesus is glorified, and the more Jesus is glorified, there is thanksgiving in that. The increase in thanksgiving is to the glory of God. In other words, also increased the glory of God. So as people come to know God, they're, they're, they're increased in their thanksgiving, and God is glorified all the more. Friends, you and I were created. You were created to glorify God. Your foundational creation basic purpose is to glorify God you may do other things but your purpose is to glorify god the the, the kids you heard me use a, a word this morning you may not be familiar with the, I said the kids are learning a catechism now you may not know the, no know no, that phrase but we use it that the technique all the time a catechism is simply questions and then learned answers. And so you learn the question and you learn the answer. And it's a way of teaching foundational foundational truths. Maybe the maybe the most well-known uh, catechism is the, the Westminster Shorter Catechism. And its very first question and answer is this: What is the chief end of man? In other words, what is your foundational purpose? And the answer is man's chief end to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Friends, God deserves all the glory. And part of what the motivating hope that motivates our evangelism is um, the, the right desire that God would receive all the glory and honor that he is due. And I believe that all those who are saved um, and, and uh, desire for God to be glorified, and, and part of that motivates our Evangelism and sharing the gospel with one another. As those who are saved increases, so does the glory that the Lord receives. And that produces thanksgiving in our hearts. That was the motivating hope for Paul. But then maybe in this passage, the most shocking thing that he says is what he says next in verse 16, 17, and 18. Look back in your passage with me, particularly in verse 17 but we'll start with verse 16 so we do not lose heart though our outer self is wasting away. in other words our physical body is wasting away we talked about that last week in the persecutions and difficulties that he had known our inner self is being renewed day by day and here's the shocker verse 17 for this light momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. The sustaining vision of Paul was preparing him for something far better. If you've been paying attention as we've preached through Second Corinthians these past uh, couple uh, weeks, you, you could not have helped but notice that, that Paul has not been shy about referencing the difficulties that he has known. And so, uh, last week, he he referenced um, that he was afflicted, that he was uh, perplexed, or, or sort of at a loss of what to do, um, that he was uh, persecuted, that he was struck down. He says that he was carrying in his body the death of Jesus, that he was always being given over uh, to, to death. And then he says even death is at work in him. Now, that's not positive. Talk. That's not positivity as the world would, would, would understand it. And, and yet, even as he recognizes that there's some really burdensome, difficult realities in his life, he is not defeated and he is not discouraged. That's why he begins with verse 16, so we do not lose heart. Even though our outer self is wasting away, we do not lose heart. How, how could that be? Because he understood that God was preparing him for something, something much better. Even though his outer self is wasting away, to all these things, Paul says in verse 16, we do not lose heart. Not only does he say that he does not lose, he is not discouraged, but he characterizes his troubles as light. In other words, they're, they're not overwhelming. They're just kind of Light. And he says, and they're momentary. In other words, they're just temporary. They're not lasting. They're not, they're not difficult in the sense of unending. Now, let's be clear. Paul is not saying that his suffering is not difficult. It is not heavy, and it is not long-suffered. It is indeed. In fact, Paul would often be beaten, jailed, mistreated, and all kind of horrible treatment because of the gospel that he preached. In fact, his life would end at the hands of executioners. So you, you could say from the moment he came to know Jesus until his last day on this earth, he knew afflictions, pretty heavy ones, if you want to characterize it in the, in the sense of just what is easy and, and hard. What he's saying is, is that the gospel has changed perspective of his vision of things. You ever noticed how sometimes people give some really, really unhelpful advice when you're struggling? So, to the one who's dealing with crippling depression, sometimes folks will say to you, Well, you you just need to get over it. Just get over it. Put on a happy face and get over it. Do you know how helpful that is? Not at all to the one who has just gotten the news of a terminal or a debilitating disease, some some will say to you well you just need to be strong just be strong and, and, uh, and carry on like normal do you know how helpful that word of advice is? not very helpful to the one who is absolutely wrecked because they're grieving the loss of a loved one sometimes people will say to you, you just need to to move on just you need to move on get busy with other things you know how helpful that advice is not helpful now it may be well intentioned I I don't think people are saying those things to be mean or unkind I think they mean well but it is unhelpful at best and at worst it actually adds to your suffering to the one that it is spoken to Gives you an extra burden that you have to endure. Friends, the honest word is that sometimes life in this world is filled with sufferings that cannot be put aside. Do you hear me? I was speaking to a physician this week, and we were, we were discussing uh, uh, that there's a reality that sometimes there is not a fix there's not sometimes there's not even an answer to what is wrong and and how so many of us when we interact with with those who are in the medical profession we want a clear diagnosis and we want a clear fix, either a procedure or a pill to take or do and get this thing over so that we can move on and here's the, the the frustrating reality of living in a genesis 3 world sometimes sometimes there is no fix Sometimes there is no procedure. Sometimes there is no pill. And sometimes there's not even a a real clear diagnosis of what's wrong. Sometimes it's just suffering. Sometimes depression lingers for years. Sometimes you get word that the rest of your life is going to be characterized by disease or disability. Sometimes grief catches you unaware and it seems like you will never get loose of it. Sometimes you endure the the, the suffering from living in a wicked world from abuse or attacks or rejection and sometimes you can avoid it, sometimes you can't. So the question has to be asked, how can Paul say of these things that they're just light and momentary? Is he saying about your grief that it's not a big deal? Is he saying about your disease or disability that it shouldn't matter? Is he saying about your depression that it's not real? I don't think so. I think to understand what Paul means by light and momentary, you have to look at verse 17. Because he says there's reason, there's There's a godly purpose behind these sufferings. He says in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction, and here it is, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. The command, listen carefully, the command here is not to ignore your present suffering. Paul is not commanding you to disregard your present suffering. He's not telling you to pretend like present suffering does not bother you. And he's certainly not saying, church, what you ought to do, regardless of the situation that you're experiencing, is just put on a happy face, tell everybody you're okay, and get on with your life. But what he is saying, listen carefully, church, No matter how heavy, no matter how intense, no matter how difficult your suffering may be, what Paul is saying is, the command here is, look at your suffering through an eternal perspective. See your difficulty with an eternal perspective. Understand the brokenness of this world with an eternal perspective. From the perspective of the hope of the gospel and the promise of eternity, The most difficult and hard sufferings this side of heaven do seem light when compared to the glory that is to come. Praise God for that. No matter how long our suffering lasts to this side of heaven, it will seem like a momentary brief episode when compared to the the long, unending eternity of the glory of heaven. Friends, the most horrible, the most difficult experience this side of heaven will seem good. Listen to me. It'll seem good. When what it is preparing you for is understood in the light of eternity. For those in Christ, (laughs) listen. For those who are in Christ, there's coming a day. When death is no more. Let that just rest for a minute. For everyone who's ever grieved at a funeral, for every spouse that's lost their. Their beloved, for every child that's lost a parent, for every parent that's lost a child, for everyone who's ever known the stinging weight of death, listen to me. For those who are in Christ, there's coming a day when death will die. For those who are in Christ, there's coming a day when grief will be forgotten. I don't know how that's going to be. Grief is such a part of this side of heaven, it's hard to imagine a day when we don't remember it anymore, but I'm convinced that in the the view of eternity after we've been there 10,000 years, maybe somebody will remember that we grief, but nobody will remember what grief was like. There's coming a day when the names of uh, those who are deceased, uh, the, 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 the names of diseases will no longer be spoken. When we say today cancer strikes heart of This thing of fear, Parkinson's disease, dementia, Alzheimer's. There's coming a day, friends, when we can forget that vocabulary because it just won't won't be needed anymore. There's coming a day when wickedness will be defeated. There's coming a day when sin will have no more victory. There is coming a day when suffering will be no more. For those who are in Christ, the sufferings of this world are preparing you for an eternal weight of glory that Paul says has no comparison. Oh, yes, presently, temporarily, momentarily, you are suffering, but there's a weight of glory that is to come. That's eternal. Knowing what is to come, listen, knowing what is to come makes the difficulties of what is seem light. And momentary, Paul's not making little of your suffering. He's not ignoring the reality of your difficulty. He's just drawing your attention to something better. He's drawing your attention to something better. He's, he's calling you to have a sustaining vision to understand that, 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 that God is, is doing something in your life and preparing for you something in your life that is far better than anything this world has. One other thing here, and that is that he's drawing your attention and encouraging the church to look to the eternal. Look at what he says in verse 18. He says here, we're not looking. We, do, we, we look not to the things that are seen, the physical world around us, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they don't have any permanence to them. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Paul's sustaining vision is his view to eternity. Now, the things of this world are seen with our physical eyes. And the honest truth is is that the things that we see, the things that we can touch, they seem like to us presently that they're very powerful. But Paul says, the truth is they're actually pretty weak. In fact, he says about the things of this world, they are transient, they're temporary. The word there that, that is translated as transient is actually an idiom that simply means from apart. In other words, it just, it's just it can't last. It's not going to make it. When I was a, a kid, I used to go to a summer camp, and one of the events that we would do at summer camp is they would, would break us into teams, and we were we were to scavenge the camp. I think it was a way for us to clean up the trash all over campus. But we were to scavenge camp for anything we could find and we had to build ourselves a raft. And then the competition was, between the teams, is we would get in the raft that we had built out of trash and we would try to to row our raft across the lake. Very seldom did any of those pieces of collected trash ever make it across the lake because they were transient (laughs) they would get waterlogged they would dissolve, they would fall apart they had no permanence to them Paul says that's the way the world is. Everything, the things that we look to, even the the great monuments of our world that seem so permanent, they're transient, they're temporary, they're passing away. But the things that are to come, they're not seen with our eyes, but they are unshakable, they are strong, they are eternal. Now, Friends, listen to me carefully here. It matters, oh, it matters where you focus your attention If you're looking to the things of this world, you will tremble before the powers of men rather than the power of God. You will be distracted from what God is doing by the things that man is doing. And ultimately, you will entrust your eternity in the temporary promises of this world, and you will strive only for temporary comfort and peace. Why is it that some today, many today, are giving their very best for a paycheck and ignoring their eternal reality? It's because they have their focus on the things of this world. They can see the paycheck They can see the car and the house and the things that they can purchase. But friends, if you look to the things of eternity, you will fear the Lord your God. If you look to the things of eternity, you will rejoice in the power of God and his work to bring about his perfect will. If you you look to to the things of eternity, you will entrust your eternity into the hand of God who raised Jesus from the grave and you believe will also raise you from the grave. And you will joyfully surrender worldly comforts so that you can have the things of eternity. Perspective matters. It matters what you give your attention to. All that you can see presently is temporary and passing away. Like the old hymn writer said, turn your eyes to Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. I enjoy running. I love the challenge of running. But but one of the things that you have to endure if you're going to be a runner is the chastisement of those who don't understand it. And one of the things that they'll often say is why would you do something that makes you look so miserable? Well, I don't disagree that runners look miserable when they're running. Because when you're running, there's an element of suffering there. Listen, when you're... When, there, there's, there are times when you have hit the wall and you really just don't feel like you've got another step in front of you and you have to decide. It's a mental game. Are you going to press on and continue or are you going to quit? There's a race that Dan and I love to, to race and it's a, a 10K and the last mile and a half, two miles is almost all uphill. That's a brutal way to end a race. You're tired. You're ready to quit. You can't see the finish line. All you can see is Hill. And I fully appreciate why everybody going up that hill looks like they are miserable. So why in the world would you do something that causes you unpleasantries and sufferings? Well, I would encourage those of you who wonder to come and spend some time not in the middle of the race. Come spend some time at the end of the race. Come hang out with the runners after the finish line. Because there's an interesting thing that happens after the finish line. So runners will gather, and they will be, and they usually talk about their race, and they'll talk about the places that they struggled, and they'll talk about the, the hard hills, and they'll talk about the they wanted to quit. But here is a fascinating reality. Runners will talk about moments that they gave up and walked a little bit. They'll, they'll talk about places where they thought they were going to quit. But I've never heard a runner after the race say, Boy, I wish I had quit early. I've never heard a runner say, I wish I had walked more. In fact, the only thing I have ever heard a runner say after the race is, I wish I had not walked as much. I wish I had ran faster. I wished I had given a little bit more, just pushed through the difficulty. Now, why would that be? Because after the finish line, After you receive the prize for running the race, all of the suffering that went before it is well worth it to get there. You're enjoying the fruit of your effort. You're enjoying the the finish line. You're enjoying the promised prize of why you did that. If you look in the middle of the race, all you see is suffering. you got to go to the end of the race to see why someone would give so much suffering to the race. Now, you might say, well, pastor, that still doesn't convince me. Why would anybody do all of that for a cheap little medallion to hang around your neck? Fair enough. But, friends, I'm telling you something. This side of heaven, there's a lot of suffering, and many are quitting because all they have is a view of of the present reality, and they go, the present reality is not worth the suffering of the gospel. But if you have a view of eternity, you have a view of the finish line, you have a view of the promises of God, oh, dear brother, dear sister, whatever suffering is here, I'm convinced the only thing we'll say in the glory is, oh, I wish we had suffered more. Oh, I wish we had given more. Oh, I wish I had given more to eternal things and less to temporary. things." Perspective matters. Attention matters. What you are looking to matters. Motivating hope is the resurrection of Jesus. And the sustaining vision is the hope of glory. Oh, dear friends, press on. Do not lose heart in the hope of the gospel. Thank you for listening to All for the Kingdom, a weekly podcast of my preaching ministry. For more sermons, blog posts, and other related content, go to bensmithsr.org. That's bensmithsr.org. I am the pastor of Central Baptist Church in Waycross, Georgia. I would love for you to join us this coming Sunday at 201 Ava Street here in Waycross. Our morning services begin at 1030 a.m. For more information about Central Baptist, go to cbcwaycross.org. Again, thank you for listening. And until the Lord returns, let us live each moment, all for the King and all for the Kingdom.